Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Brighton Rock, where I'm rejoined by my cohort, Peter Marsh. Hello, Peter. Hey, Russ. We're also rejoined with Richard Hoverton, who we were talking to earlier on this Sunday afternoon. How are you, Richard? Very well, Russ. Excellent. Good, good. And we are now joined by a former um, appearance holder on this show, the Ditchling Gent, well, now known just as the Gent, if you prefer, uh, a man formerly of Ditchling. Uh, now off Stockwell in London, it's Mr. Raymond Wright. Hello, Raymond. Uh, good evening, Russell. How are you doing? Good? Uh, fine, thank you. Um, so, uh, been waiting here and uh, glad to join you, the three of right. you. Okay, good. You're enjoying the technology, you know, so that's good. <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it, getting used to all this stuff? It's, uh, it's mad. We're uh, speaking on Zoom and uh, we're going to plug straight on with what I was going to talk about, which was to start with... Raymond, we've had you on before. We've spoken about the Albion and various matters of what's gone on on pitch that week or other. What we haven't spoken about in detail is about your Albion supporting past. So what is your story? So you you would have um, been born just after the war, wouldn't you, and grown up in the 50s, 60s? That would be about right? Yes, I, I first, first started following the Albion, I guess, in the so around 57. Um, when uh, we went to um, uh, the season we got promoted from the third division south as, as champions. Yeah. And then uh, we, uh, first time I went was uh, the following, I can't remember if it was very towards the end of the, that season or the next season when we were in League Two, which we uh, memorably lost our first match in, at Middlesbrough 9-0 with one scoring <laughs> five goals. Oh. <laughs> we we lost the return match 6-4, which was quite exciting. Um, but uh, the record, records show that, in fact, that season we finished above Middlesbrough in 12th place, in fact, in the league. Uh, so I suppose, in a sense, we got our revenge. Uh, players from that era, um, very strong half-back line, um, Jack Bertolini, right half. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Roy Jennings. Um, 
who sort of came into his own and started establishing himself then, real uh, rock of a centre-half. Um, Steve Foster um, sort of followed in his footsteps, in a sense, in terms of style. And uh, Steve Bertenshaw, who then went on to coach Arsenal, uh, hmm. they, when they started to move again. And uh, I think it was a coach during their double, their first double in the early 70s. Right, right. So, uh, Steve Burtonshaw yeah. was a. Uh, was he a Brightonian? He lives in Brighton. Was he from Brighton? I'm not sure if he was a local Brightonian or not, but certainly he was there for quite a number of seasons. I mean, he was there at that era, and he was still there in '64, '65. By which time we dropped down to the fourth division. Mm. Um, but he, he was around for quite a long time, very much the stalwart of the club. Um, somebody else in that era was Dave Hollins. Um, John Hollands' uh, older brother, goalkeeper who played for Wales, um, and arguably one of the best goalkeepers that, that we've ever had. Uh, I mean, excellent player, uh, and was with us for several seasons before moving on to uh, and upwards to better things. But so, some good players. Jack Shepherd, who died about 18 months ago, um, was a sort of new signing for the season and centre forward. And there were uh, so, you know, some good players around. Yeah, and and when you were starting to go, what sort of age was it particularly? Do you remember what age your first game was? So you would have been. I, I must have been. I, I must have been ten. Right. So uh, an impressionable time at that age. Uh, what, what what were the key moments that you remember apart from the match? What were the things you remember about going to the games back then? I'm just trying to get an idea of the. the well, I, I think the first time I was in the old. Uh, South Stand, sort of a bit of a shed the first couple of times. Um, my father took me the, uh, with a friend the first several times we went. In fact, he had a very good record. He, he watched about 12 games. Brighton won 11 of them and, and drew the other one. So uh, it's a pity he didn't actually go come and watch more games with us. <laughs> as the yeah. years we might have been, been the Liverpool <laughs> Uh, of today now, uh, had he done so. But uh, I'm not sure anybody else has watched, watched 12 games and had 11 wins and one draw and no defeats. That's a hell of a start, I've got to say. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty impressive. And so how much would it, would it have cost? So we're talking, so normal admission. No idea, because my father paid. Yeah. Know, went along and it was a, you know, uh, quite a big thing to go to. Um, from the age of about 12, 13, this friend and I used to go down by ourselves. And so how things have changed. I mean, would you mm. allow uh, sort of 11, 12, 13-year-olds to go down to a match by themselves now? I, I guess not. I'm, not. I'm not sure the club would allow that now, actually. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure about that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's certainly changed, hasn't it? The, the, the trust, I'm sure things would happen from time to time, but the trust levels for allowing kids to go out and do their own thing is changed completely hasn't it along with the I know it's heavily cliched but the whole thing of kids playing in the street with balls and kicking up against a wall and that sort of thing you still get that but only in a certain constricted way don't you uh, compared with how things used to be and I'm trying to imagine what the, the sort of the setting of that time as well that era the 50s you've still got rationing you'd still well, I mean, things were very the different late, the late 50s Rationing had probably finished. It probably finished in around the, the, the about 54 Street rationing and 55 oh, okay. around okay. there. We had mm. some more rationing because of 
of the Suez Crisis uh, in '56. They, uh, they thought the oil supplies would drop and everything else. So suddenly there was petrol rationing. Mm -hmm. That went away. But one of my abiding memories was going down this friend and I, the two of us, to watch a Boxing Day game, Brighton against Bournemouth, I think, I'm pretty certain. And before the game, there was some sort of disagreement between a, a, a Brighton fan and a Bournemouth fan. And they went out onto the pitch and stood in roughly the goal area and sort yeah. of tried to throw a couple of punches at each other. <laughs> Don't think they did much damage. It was Boxing Day, so it was appropriate. The police just stood back and let them get on with it. And they actually came off the pitch, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, arms around each other, the, the best of mates. And as far as I know, may still, still well be in touch and still be friends. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Marvellous. A prototype to football organism. <laughs> a little bit different to later on, isn't it, I think? Yes, really I is. think they would have been hauled off to the local police station in, that, in this day and age. But uh, it, uh, times have changed. Yeah, yes, indeed. So through the years, um, go, go, moving into the later era, as time went on, did you carry on going to matches throughout your yeah, life? Yeah, you were I, football, weren't you? I abroad? mean, I, I was away at school a lot of the time. So, um, but in a sense, when the holidays were on, I went, continued to go. After I left school, uh, started going quite a lot. I was playing rugby on Saturdays, so it wasn't quite so easy. But before the rugby season, started and towards the end of the season and there were odd game Saturdays when we didn't have games and I kept on watching, I remember watching quite a lot around the Bobby Smith era um, and his first season Division 4 Archie McCauley the manager we got promoted back up to Division 3 um, yeah. and we had you know, Wally Gould was uh, another player, scored a lot of goals from the wing um, yeah. and uh, you know, there, there was uh, it was a good season. Somewhere around there, we played Wisbech in the cup, non-league side. Uh, and I remember going to that and we won 10-1. Yeah, that's a record, I think. I think it might be the record win. Not yeah, sure. I think it is, yeah. I, I, I think it probably is, but it was a lot of fun, I can tell you. I, mean, I think we scored <laughs> seven goals in the second half alone. And, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine the, you know, for... You know, somebody of about 18 or so, um, 19, that sort of age. Yeah, you know, I enjoyed that. It might have been 17, but that sort of age, it was uh, uh, not the sort of thing I'm ever likely to see again. At least not us scoring the goals anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then we had, um, we had some title wins and promotions, didn't we, as, as time went on um, through those years. Um, what do you remember about those? I can't remember the exact years without so double-checking. Well, we, we went... In, in the sort of, when Murray came on board, of course, we then got the promotion from, from the third division to the second. Um, and you know, that was uh, uh, obviously fairly memorable. And we, you know, the, the whole sort of team had, had changed, obviously, dramatically by then. I mean, I can remember sort of names. I think our first season in, in the then Division One, players like Martin Chivers, Chris Catlin, I remember being Paul Clark, Brian Horton, mm. Mark Lawrenson, um, Teddy Maybank at centre forward, yeah. another yeah. centre forward, mm -hmm. uh, Peter O'Sullivan still still playing. I mean, just of Andy Rollings. Yeah, Who we've had Jerry, I mean Jerry Ryan. Um, uh, there were uh, a lot of uh, 
Totally good players. And uh, Neil McNabb, I think, was, was there by that stage. If he wasn't there that season, he was there the next. So, uh, yeah, well, are, are, are more synonymous with modern Albion. Yeah, well, that's an era that um, is, is my childhood, is where I remember going to games. And we had Richard uh, speaking on the previous episode about his time growing up being an Albion fan. Um, so, certainly for you as well, isn't it, Richard? Um, your era too. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, I recognise a few of those names with Teddy Maybank, as well, I didn't mention. There's a guy called yeah. Eddie, Eddie Spirit. Well, I can't remember the years that he played, but that was a. I think that was a bit earlier. I was think. it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and Kit yeah. Napier from an earlier yeah. vintage, around the, the, earliest, the earlier 70s. Hmm. So, unfortunately, a few of these people have passed away in the last year or two, actually. I think Kit Napier, Jack Shepard, um, I think Wally Gould, possibly. And I think you mentioned Roy Jennings when, on a previous conversation I've had with you. Raymond, I think they all passed away in fairly recent years, the last two or three years, which is a great shame. Um, so yes, we, we may have quite a useful team in paradise. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe already. Yeah, well, let's hope nobody else joins them anytime soon anyway. But um, in terms of, yeah, that, that era, so you, would you say, what was your favourite era from a um, from just personal experience point of view, either footballing or otherwise? I would... I mean, one's first experiences of going down are, in a sense, magical, and therefore they're ones that one will always remember. I think that era, of the Mullery era, yeah. uh, getting in, in, into Division One, And then I think the recent times um, at the Amex. Mm. Um, I think last season was a bit of a diner. I, I think more, I mean, we survived, but it was more our play wasn't as attractive as it's been in some of the other other times. Yeah. And, and, this, and this year, I think we've been playing more attractive football, uh, more the sort of football I would like to see us playing, but perhaps not quite getting the results. But I think uh, I think the Amex era, close to 2-1 now. Yeah. More, more comfortable. Yeah. I think looking back, nostalgically, there's always reminiscences and you tend to have a, a, a sort of, like a, should we say, a, a flowered sort of view of how things were at the time. Um, so it's easy to hop back to another time. But I think for me, I'd agree with you, the Amex is pretty much the golden era for me now. Um, we've had some such good times there, um, getting promoted and staying in the Premier League, um, such a great stadium, some, some great memories already formed. Um, Mm. new cultures and things that you, you, you're doing and what, what you're doing and the, um, your, your pre-match rituals, if you like. Um, I think that's, I think we're forming the nostalgia of the future very much at the moment. There's a really strong distinction there with what's going on yeah. in the current it's time. Happened, it's, happened, it's happened quite quickly as well, because it can, it can take, when you move to a new stadium, it can take time to kind of build up yeah. a bank of memories and experiences mm. and great games and associations with the place. Um, hmm. I remember going to uh, other reasons going to um, the Etihad when Man City had just moved in there, and, yeah. and well, I think maybe it was their second season there. And a lot of people said, you know, this feels like a kind of alien environment still because it just hmm. hadn't become used to it. And I think you know, in in a fairly short space of time, I think people have got pretty strong associations and great memories from from what's gone on in, in the, at the Amex in in not many seasons. Yeah. 
We should explain as well, Raymond, you're a season ticket holder in the East Stand Lower, aren't you? Just to That's right, yes. Actually, I mean, uh, actually, from the beginning, quite, yeah. Uh, quite close to Peter. Yeah, just like yes. row, row behind, yeah. Yeah, row Lovely. behind, uh, about 10 seats to the right. Yeah. <laughs> ah, half-time bottles, it, anyone? Civilized, <laughs> a very civilised place to sit. <laughs> I have a very nomadic existence. I sit anywhere I can get tickets. Yeah, yeah. And I'm in the West Upper, and... Um, it's it's less civil uh, where we are. It's quite good actually. It's quite noisy. Um, but uh, it's you know it's a different dynamic. I think a lot of the people where I am are the old North Standers from the Goldstone era, yeah. which I was of that number as well. Um, so it's people who have got to a certain age, and I don't know they they, they want a halfway house between the more luxuriant view and the the side view on on the pitch, and just I don't know just something slightly more relaxed, um, coupled with still being a bit noisy, which is what it is up there. It's quite good. Uh, um, but the, but as I say the whole dynamics of the stadium have been great, I think, from the off and bodes well. Um, just uh, we we spoke a bit with Richard in the previous episode um, about the Hewton to Potter era. I'm not sure I've asked you on air about this, Raymond, before. So, what's your take on Hewton, the decision and the timing, and what's your take on Potter so far? Um, I think if they were going to make the move. And I actually felt a change was needed. It had to be done once the season ended as quickly as possible. And it, that almost wasn't fast enough because it's probably taken Graham uh, quite, at least most of the season to become fully familiar with the squad and, and what he really needs. And if he'd been brought in any later, um, that would have been less time and he would have had less time to prepare uh, and to liaise with um, uh, Dan over what requirements were recruiting-wise. And I think that that's very difficult. I don't think it's ever a good time. But if you're going to do it, do it on... If the season ends on the 12th of May, do it on the change on the 13th. I think that was, that was sensible. I suspect the club had made the decision some weeks earlier. Yeah, yeah. Because that think... have, in order to have had the discussions of who they wanted to go to. Mm. I, I think if we can uh, survive this season by you know, one way or the other, um, then I think Potter will prove to be a good acquisition. I think the difficulty is his first season in the Premier League is always going to be a difficult one. And uh, coming to terms with a new club, a new playing squad, uh, it's not his squad, he's inherited a lot of it. Um, not easy. And, and yeah. And we haven't quite got the results that our play has, has perhaps merited or should have got with the amount of possession and games that we've controlled. That lack of cutting edge um, might cost us. But yeah. I think, actually, I think as an investment for the future, you know, I, I, the jury's out, but I think it looks promising. Yeah, and of course the players have to get used to the different style as well as the other adaption that needs to, needs to happen. Um, Going forwards, do you, I mean, obviously, players are, is the big issue. We're is playing a getting used to a style, getting confidence, getting consistency, getting an understanding, all those things we've talked about before, but also getting in other players as well, strengthening all the time. Where do you think our weaknesses lie, and where would you like to see us strengthen in well, the next window, whenever that is? Yeah. I think it's a good point was made by Dan Ashworth on Friday on, on the fans' uh, sort of question and answer session with him and Graham that one shouldn't confuse formations with style. And the, mm. the whole idea of having players who can be 
comfortable wherever they are on the pitch uh, with the ball or, or without the ball for that matter. Um, and I think that is a whole you know, fundamental change from, from where we were with, with Chris Hewton, who was very disciplined uh, and very much uh, you know, every player knew where he was meant to be and what he was meant to be doing. And it was very disciplined, but building from the strength of the defence, uh, whereas I think with Potter, it's very much the style is building, trying to play with the ball more mm. rather than without the ball. Um, in terms of strengthening, uh, I think clearly there's a need for more cutting edge up front. Um, I suspect that we need a really good defensive midfielder. Whether we've got one you know, in the wings in someone like Jason Malumbi, I don't know. But I sort of feel that the back three, four hasn't got that sort of Kante type player who is going to break up the opposition's attacks and then start our attacks moving. Liam Bridcook did it for a bit, um, you know, some years ago. Very good at doing that, sweeping up and, and setting the tempo. Um, so perhaps a, a, a proper, I think it's a good player, but I don't think he's a defensive midfielder. And not that he's being used like that. Gary Stevens, uh, sorry, Dale Stevens, <laughs> <Dale laughs> um, you know, has done a, a, a good job in that thing. But again, I think he's better when he's played further forward, or was has historically been. Um, so that's one thing. Another somebody to play up front with with Neil Morpé, I think. Um, whether or not we'll get uh, Esquedo back, that extra pace out wide somewhere would be welcomed. Yeah. yeah. And I think a right back. I don't think we've replaced Bruno, in either in terms of his leadership uh, or in terms of the quality of his play and, and, and positioning sense and just general calmness. Hmm. Yeah, he's such a calm influence and a calm... Um, composed touch on the ball was was always superb, wasn't it? Um, Montoya up to a point fills fills the gap, but yeah, the long term successor you feel is still to be to be decided, isn't it? And to be found, um, we'll have to see what happens going forwards. Of course, we're in lockdown now for a few weeks. Um, the latest news this week um, includes information that Spurs have finally relented and decided to reverse their furlough decision, um, following the footsteps of Liverpool, who enacted and then reversed theirs in the meantime. <laughs> so Spurs took quite a long time to come to that eventual decision. They've come in for a lot of criticism. Bournemouth have also done so. So I think it's only Norwich that have, have um, enacted one and not reversed it so far. Maybe they have their reasons financially. Um, they're certainly running on a tight budget, I think. Um, but that was one bit of information. Um, Newcastle, the takeover news is back on, isn't it? We've had Mike Ashley now reportedly uh, entering into an agreement to sell to, I think it's called PCP Capital. It's a group mainly consisting of a Saudi businessman of some sort, or a rich Saudi anyway. Um, and there's, I think it's Amanda Stavely, the American negotiator who's part of the deal. She's getting a small amount. Ashley, I think, um, looking to sell for something like 300 million, I think it is. Um, so it's interesting if that finally happens, promises of money uh, going to them. Um, one bit, maybe you'll be interested in this particularly, Raymond, as a man with Scottish background. Furious debate in Scotland regarding the Scottish um, SPFL um, voting arrangement. The situation was Friday before last, um, a vote was supposed to have gone in by all the clubs, all 42, 
to decide on whether to finish the season or not. Um, Dundee's vote didn't register because they sent apparently a PDF file instead of a JPEG, which didn't get through the firewall. As a result, that meant that the deciding vote was still in the balance, um, literally on the, on the edge. Um, and instead of then just looking for that, um, that file and acknowledging the initial decision, they decided to allow Dundee to have more time as the deadline that had been set wasn't compulsory, it was only optional, which is a bizarre situation. Um, Dundee subsequently then finally voted, I think, on Wednesday, and it swung the decision by the SPFL as a collective to end the decision now and impose relegation and promotion based on the current positions. I think something to do with the average points maybe have taken into account. So it seems a bit of a shambles. I don't know if anybody's got a view on this one. Um, former Celtic player Andy Walker stated... Um, a light has been shone on how things work in Scottish football, and it looks really ugly. <laughs> what are your views, guys? I think it's... Well, uh, well uh, go on, Raymond. Uh, well, all I was going to say, as somebody whose father was Scottish, uh, and seeing the way that uh, perhaps they do things in Scotland sometimes, uh, they wanted to give Dundee the right enough time to change their mind to get the decision they wanted. Um, mm. uh, I think it would be interesting if they had an independence vote and all of us in England were allowed to vote on, on whether Scotland went independence as well. I, I tend to think that the rest of us would vote for their independence. Uh, they they <laughs> like to, to do things that sort of way. To me, it, it, you either let everybody vote again or you, I think, you know, realise what their intention was. Their intention was to vote against the motion, which would have failed. Uh, if, if it had been included, and yeah. it, it doesn't, something not quite right about about the process. Mm. I think I, it, I, I, yeah, I think. I mean, I think they may have done. You know, who knows how other, including including the Premier League, is going to extricate itself from the current situation or get things completed. But you know, they they may have done others a favour by um, you know presenting an object lesson in how not to do it. I mean, I, you know, I think I think the print, the principle of, um, you know, doing it on uh, average points per game, I think, is what they did. And then putting that to the vote and then somehow having so many irregularities in how the votes were actually cast and somebody changing their view. You know, from, from what I can gather, there's all sort of manner of, um, you know, accusations flying around and potential lawsuits flying around. Um absolute mess you know personally i you know i i'm there isn't there isn't an easy solution for anyone to the predicament that we're in at the moment but i wouldn't be in favor of um either abandoning things or or, or granting promotions and relegations based on either current standings or average points per game or, or something that doesn't involve completing the season if that's possible um and obviously that's an if um but yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a complete shambles to me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think I think there's no right decision here in a sense, generally, but that's the least right of all decisions to give the to do it based on current positions because it, it's unfair. A team might have all the bottom teams to play. Yeah. A team might have all the top teams to play and only have, like a, I think, Partick in the division below were only a point adrift or something like that yeah. when they and they had a game in hand or something and they still got relegated it's it's really not the they've done the way they've done it is wrong that the voting system is obviously a bit of a shambles as well yeah allowing Dundee a position where they could 
basically name their price in effect. Uh, yeah, yeah I, understand, I understand Dundee also issued a statement after they changed their vote from no to yes, which obviously had consequences, pretty severe consequences for certain other teams. Yeah. You know, we've, mm. we've tried to yeah. do what's, what's best for, uh, you know, everyone in the game, which seems to have backfired spectacularly yeah. and put people's back up even more than it was before. So, yeah, I don't think Partick and Stranraer is it. I think one of the ones down at the bottom of the mm, division. Parts as well. Parts. Yeah, yeah, well they, no, because the Premier League are not part of this, though, at the moment. Their Premiership has got it. No, they not. haven't officially done. So this only applies to the Championship and Leagues 1 and 2. Oh, that's right, the, yeah. The, the Premiership, they, they're trying to fudge some sort of way of doing it so that the Premiership doesn't have relegation because yeah, probably because they think there's more money there, so teams will probably sue, whereas lower right. down, they probably haven't got the money to do it. Yeah, theirs is still pending, isn't it? That's right. So they're, they're, they're almost using the rest of the Scottish structure as a prototype as well, aren't they? Which, 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 does, which does cast light on, you know, what, <laughs> what gets done in England, in the Premier League. Um, yeah, yeah. Not, not that would be my suggestion. There is absolutely no way with the money in the Premier League that they can relegate Villa and I don't know who it would be. I think I've seen different options depending on whether they averaged out points per home and away or points per overall game. But mm-hmm. there's no way they can relegate Villa, Norwich and one other based on average points per game. That's just well, there, there yeah. something, the I mean, amount think, of money. Yeah, I mean, Tony, Tony Bloom was quoted today as saying there should not be relegations unless there's, there's not... There's not- yeah. yeah, unless there is a scenario whereby all games can be completed somehow. Yeah, hmm. yeah. But for all the reasons that you said, Peter. Yeah. I, I, if if I can go back to what Paul Barber said way back, um, which I thought wasn't a bad solution. Not everybody is going to agree with it. Where he said, "All right, if we can't finish, don't have relegation from the Premier League. Promote the two top teams in the Championship." i.e. West Brom and, and Leeds, as things stand, and have one season with a 22-team Premier League, with four teams then being relegated next season, and two being promoted from the Championship to get us back to the same number of teams in each division. I thought that was not, not a bad solution mm-hmm. if we are left with this um, games-can't-be-finished scenario. Um, uh, talking as a Brighton fan, um, and completely prejudiced, I would love the season to be ended now yeah. uh, with us in our current position. I but, think where that where struck, really struggles, though, I think you're OK at the top of... If you're not relegating teams, fine, that, that survives. You're the bottom OK, but the top of the Premier League's fine, Liverpool win it, and the top of the Championship's fine. But like the top of League One, we've discussed it on previous shows as well, it's like there's like about nine or ten teams in about three points of each other and loads of different numbers of games. And it was just, a, we had absolute shambles working that out because teams who were supposed to have played Barry and supposed to and missed out on their game against Bolton early in the season when Bolton weren't playing. It's There's some teams like four, and some have a cup run as well. There's like some teams only got three or four games in hand or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's an, um, it's an absolute shambles at that level. It certainly is. I mean, the Premier League had a meeting on Friday and the upshot and feedback, I think, from that is that pretty much they decided just to have another meeting and decide it later. That <laughs> seems to be the... Yeah. I mean, they've more or less set a, a general outline for when they want to get it done, but not much is going on. If the season it, it, does end up getting frozen, though, I'm wondering, um, being a, a new season, if we just froze, froze things, restarted with the same teams in the same divisions, I'm wondering if, on that basis, you'd award this season um the Liverpool the title as it has no other knock on effects or consequences on anyone, but keep every other team in the same division and then apply a percentage points total possibly projected into a starting points total for next season, if you see what I mean. So so something 
proportional to how well teams have done last year gives them a small points advantage at the beginning of the following year. Um, maybe there's, there's some some way of having a compromise if they're going down the frozen season route. Maybe. Yeah, I, I, my understanding of what the prem, the, one of the upshots of the meeting that you mentioned on Friday was that a, and it may may, may be no more than a vague statement of intent, but that the club Premier League clubs would prefer the season to be completed. I, yeah, yeah. Somehow, somehow or other, sometime or other, all the remaining games get played. They want their TV money, basically. Well, whether that's possible or not, who knows? But, you know, I can't help thinking that, and I think Paul Barber may have said the same thing at some point, that any other solution is a, you know, a bonanza for the lawyers. But but other than that, it's it, it's very difficult. So, you know, we're seeing a lot more about games being played behind closed doors, some or all. You know, if if that were, you know, only under certain circumstances. And I think but the other thing that was made out of that meeting is that, you know, that, that would only happen with the express sanction of mm-hmm. the government or the NHS, because, oh, sorry, the government and the NHS, because, you know, while it may be possible to hold a game behind closed doors, you know, if that were to be happening at a time when cases of coronavirus were still rising or it's not under control and some and lockdown is, or some element of lockdown is still in place, I you know, is is that the right thing to be seen to be doing? I would argue no, it isn't. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'll be honest, having taken so long for us to get into the Premier League, it'd be pretty unsatisfactory for us to get relegated behind closed doors. We've got five home games left. All of them, you know, I've seen people say it's like actually would give us a worse chance because they're all against bigger clubs, a lot of them against bigger clubs. And maybe the home crowd would have been the extra edge that we needed to try and have a oh. chance against them. Mm. I it's think that, that there is an issue actually going on. In the Sunday Times today, they're talking about, you know, over 70s, which I fall into, um, not uh, you know, being on lockdown possibly for a year or more. Well, that is the case. All these games coming out the rest of this season, even if they're played, I won't be able to go to. It also means that this <laughs> part of next season, I won't be able to go to. Um, so mm. uh, what do I do? Uh, I don't want to lose my season ticket, mm. obviously. I could, I suppose, if I can speak to somebody sensible at the club, be able to come to an arrangement where they can sell it subject to my being able to get it back the moment I want it. But you, where we sit, uh, Peter and I, there are quite a lot of elderly people who, who probably are probably over 70 in that thing. So you could have huge gaps on the terraces, mm. even if you have got supporters there. I, I don't see any way we'll have supporters at football matches for a long time, to be honest. It's probably going to be last big gatherings of like, you know, 30, 40,000 people like they have in the Premier League are going to be a very, very, you know, kind of late on the list of things to actually go to, I would have thought. So like <laughs> Scotland has, they had meetings of no more than 500 people. Mm. So, uh, yeah, would be yeah, I mean, I mean, thirty thousand. Sorry, crowd, would be a crowd of two thousand. You get one match a season. Yeah, I'm mean, yeah, inclined to agree with you, Peter. I think you know that you know we could debate for hours and hours as sort of armchair epidemiologists. How do we how do we un- emerge from lockdown? Um, and it's a really difficult <laughs> set of questions. But I, you know, gradually and in phases, I think is the likely answer yeah. to it. And I think that. You know, big gatherings like football crowds or concerts or music festivals or that kind of thing are going to be some way down the list of things that it becomes possible to do again. 
Yeah, I think so. Well, certainly there's, there's so many debates, isn't there? And it's going to go on and on. As you said, we're all armchair experts now, aren't we? Um, but anyway, we'll discuss that on and on as the uh, lockdown continues, I'm sure. We'll also discuss a few more things in the second part of this uh, podcast episode, episode 28, when we reconvene in a moment. So stay tuned, everybody. And uh, we will be back. Hi. Um, so, a question for, for Peter and Russell. I'm going to start with Russell very briefly. Just two questions, Russell. We bought uh, in the early days, um, in, in the late 50s, uh, a left winger from Everton. Yeah. Uh, initials of BL. Do you happen to know who the player is? That's So, so in the 50s, yeah, late 50s, about 50, 59 or 60, we bought a left winger from Everton and his initials, first name B, starts with B, second name starts with L. Do you know who the player was? Uh, well, it's before my era. I'm just thinking if he's famous in some other way. It seems to be what you're driving out there. Um, no, not really. I'm just, just curious. Huh? Oh, no, I don't. I don't, then. No, I don't uh, think so. Can I take Bobby a guess? Oh, that wasn't that. And, and the other, there was a very, in 64, we bought a very promising uh, youngster um, from Everton as well, who sadly uh, died in a, a car accident after 12 matches, which, who I'm actually convinced would have been a complete icon um, for, for Brighton. I mean, really going to be a great player. Mm-hmm. Um, and so died when he was 18, 19. Have any idea who that was? Our first season in Division Four, where we won the championship. Yeah, I remember hearing about this, and I can't remember his name. Was it Adrian something? I can't remember his name. No, no, no. no. You're thinking of Adrian Thorne, but uh, possibly. But um, he was a wing half, oh. and uh, initials B R. B R. No, none the none the wiser. I don't think Richard. And, and he would have <laughs> qualified to play for Wales. No, my answer is exactly the same as yours, Russell. <laughs> no uh, idea. A guy yeah. called Barry Barry Reese. Uh, okay. okay. Anyway, that's yeah, a, um, the, the real question was to ask you the question you asked, asked earlier. In terms of strengthening the Albion, you know, what would you see? Because you tend to be asking questions, but not necessarily getting your thing. And also, I haven't heard Peter's views on what we should do. Just with the added thing of throwing in, that I think Ben White could play right back. And he played, I remember his last game for the under-23s uh, last season against Swansea. He was playing at right back and had three assists. But we scored three goals and Ben White had all three assists. So yeah. I throw that like into a, Yeah, That's, like a, that's a throwback question. Is that if we stay up? Is that assuming we stay up? Assuming we stay up, yes, I think yeah. so, yeah. Well, and, or... As an alternative, what your thoughts would be differently if we went didn't say up? Well, I think personally that Ben White's one of the finest young players we've developed ever uh, from what I've seen in the early stages. I've seen a few of his games in the Championship on TV. Um, everything you read and hear about uh, from fans, the media and from pundits in general is that he's as good as I'm thinking he is. Um, he's got all of the attributes. He's already attracting the top clubs to at least show some interest hopefully not too much interest at this stage I think he should figure in our in our team 
regardless next season. I think he's that good that he should at least be getting towards establishing himself as a first-team regular. That's how much I rate him. And whether we can do that if we were to be in a scenario where we went down and Leeds went up is another matter. Could we do that? Maybe, maybe not. But um, I certainly would like to see him involved next season regardless because I think he's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Peter? Yeah, I've not seen as much of Ben White as I think you have. I mean, my one slight concern in terms of the hype is obviously Adam Webster was up there with the best, probably the best championship defender last year and has obviously struggled a bit this season at times to Mm. to, uh, certainly made one or two errors that people have pointed out. And it's a big jump up. I I know people are getting carried away a lot. I think obviously he's got huge potential and it's like, yeah, hopefully it will be here. I mean, if we sell him, I'd rather sell him to almost anyone of the Leeds. (laughs) <laughs> the arrogance of Leeds fans have been talking about it. You think he was their player and we had no hope of keeping hold of him. I think uh, some of these, like the general kind of, yeah. I, yeah. You know you know my view on Leeds and their fans is not particularly uh, a <laughs> yeah. uh, good high-level one, but yeah. Except, think, of course, for the um, there is there is the fan who's five-year-old who wrote a suspiciously yeah. adult uh, word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and neat handwriting, too, for a five-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> The, the, the sentiment was good, wasn't it? He wrote to Paul Barber asking if we can have, if they can have him, and he put together fifteen pounds and seven p from his piggy bank, I think. Um, and the club uh, replied back, "Fair play to Paul Barber with a nicely worded type letter and signed letter um, back." And I, I, I think Radrazani uh, uh, has replied on Twitter to that by saying um, that they would help chip in with the young lad's uh, savings towards trying to get him. <laughs> Uh, but apart from Ben White, um, both of you, um, where else would you like to see change? Shall I, shall I go first? Shall I, or? Yeah, go I ahead. think I think a striker is obviously the the, the top uh, high priority one. Um, I think a winger would be quite good. We don't know yet, obviously, how good McAllister will be. And at right back, if Lamptey will, you know, can actually make the step up and become the permanent right back. I I, I actually think Montoya has been a little bit hard done by this season. I think he's. He's played pretty well, and yet he's been taken off, substituted quite a lot. And I actually think he's been a lot better than last season when he, he struggled a bit. Um, I'd yeah. like to see a lot more of Bernardo at left-back, I think, generally. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd agree with all of that. I think Montoya's kept Zaha quiet, hasn't he, Mr. Tumble, for yeah. quite a bit as well. Um, in general, um, I think he's solid. I think, yeah, probably has been a little bit underrated by those inside and outside the club, maybe. Um, but he's, yeah, he's, he's got potential to step on and inhabit that role for a longer period. I would like to see greater competition one way or the other. Maybe Lafferty could step up, yeah, possibly. But we'll, we'll have to see. But no, I, I pretty much agree with you on that one, yeah. Peter. I think we need another left-back uh, as well. Richard, sorry, I was going to say, uh, has Richard anything to add to what he might have said earlier? Not that I heard what Richard said earlier. <laughs> um, yeah, probably not much. I mean, I, I kind of agree with what Peter said about Montoya. And Bruno is quite a hard act to follow, apart from anything else. But I think Montoya has been reasonably solid most of the time. Um, you know, from the games I've watched, some, what, sometimes what happens is, you know, where, where we fall down is attacks kind of run out of steam 35 yards out or 40 yards out for lack of, you know, a good final pass or a very creative midfielder yeah. who can unlock a defence with the last pass or the last couple of passes or a, or a piece of skill. So, you know, whether somebody like Basuma or Moy, you know, Moy does that sometimes, whether they can do that at that level consistently or whether it needs someone else to come in and do it. Not sure. Um, that would be my observation. 
Yeah, mm. I I agree with that, and I think McAllister hopefully might become the player yeah, yeah. if he's when he, when he eventually gets a chance to to, to have more than ten minutes at Wolves or whatever. Mm. I I do agree in a sense with what you said earlier, Raymond. I think we've got quite a lot of midfielders, but we do lack maybe a really dominant defensive midfielder, and you know maybe a genuinely six foot four, you know, strong in attack or someone who gets stuck in. And we do lack a bit of pace with Nessie's Kiel is going to somehow make a miraculous recovery. Yeah, um, we'll wait to see how things uh, transpire in yeah. that regard. Um, Quite a lot of players on... then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah we, need, we need a fair few. And thanks for the question, Raymond. I think it's a good, a good yeah. one. Um, just going through a few other bits that have happened in the last week or two. Uh, obituaries. There's been, unfortunately, quite a few uh, famous names in the world, particularly of football, um, that have unfortunately passed away. Radi Ancic, do you remember him? He was he played for Luton. Uh, he also played and managed um, Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid and Barcelona, which is a pretty rare feat. I think he won the treble with Atletico um, in his time there, the domestic treble, I think it was. Um, a bit of a player. Um, he scored the goal for Luton, which I think allowed them to survive in the top flight and led to the famous David Pleat yeah. on pitch celebration in, in weird canter with um, bright coloured suit on. Uh, that's what he's probably most famous for over here. But we've lost some legends of the game as well. Peter Bonetti, who has a connection with Sussex, actually. His family moved down and opened a cafe next to the Dome Cinema on Worthing Seafront um, some years back, um, obviously a long time back. Um, but Peter Bonetti himself, the cat, was a famous, I think one of the all-time um, appearance holders for Chelsea, uh, played for England as well. Um, he was he was a legend of the game, and Norman Hunter, who's unfortunately uh, been well had the had the better of him taken from COVID. Uh, uh, unfortunately, cost him his life. Um, he was uh, bite your legs, Norman Hunter. Um, looking back on some of the footage from the uh, article when he died the other day. Uh, his fouls are pretty. His fouls are pretty much tantamount to assault. I'm not sure you'd get away with any of his style of defending nowadays. He was in the World Cup squad, although he didn't play in that tournament. Um, but it was sad to see him go. Um, quickly, comments on that from you guys? Do you, well, do you remember uh, playing any of you? I start right quickly with Hunter. Um, I mean, when he tackled, he tackled, <laughs> and the person yeah, knew he'd been tackled. But yeah. tackling was much more vigorous in those days. And a lot more was allowed, and the more sort of shoulder charges, you know, shoulder to shoulder, and things like that. And it was, um, you know, I mean, Dave Mackay, um, you know, the, the, there were quite a lot of uh, Chopper Harris. I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> as you know, his nickname implied what he did. Um, yeah. So it, it was a much more physical game than it is today. And of course, you played with the, the leather ball. And, of course, that's obviously had a, quite a impact, I should think, on uh, people suffering from uh, dementia and things like that. I think there's been a, a huge amount of that. And I, I mean, the leather ball you know, must have had huge effects on all sorts of people. Yeah. Um, and in terms of uh, Peter Bonetti, because I was reading in the Argus, but comments by, by Don Keeley, who had been coached by Peter, uh, down at Brighton, apparently he went down um, every Wednesday and and looked after the, uh, the Brighton coaches. The first time they had a specialist goalkeeping coach, so there right. is an Albion connection with Peter. And mm-hmm. yes, the Cats, um, well over seven hundred appearances for Chelsea, um, sadly remembered for his mistake in the match against Germany and Mexico. 
which I think was unfair. Uh, you know, for, for that one mistake, everybody remembers him, and yet he must have made God knows how many fantastic saves uh, in his career. That's always and, the life of a goalkeeper, though, isn't it? It's, you're remembered yeah. for the, uh, the howlers and not, the, not necessarily the saves. Yeah, yeah. so I suppose, yeah. like, uh, uh, our, our goalkeeper Stockdale is the only goalkeeper I know who scored two own goals in the same game. Yeah. And also, sadly, for that goal against Villa as well, which he let through his legs and mm. probably... I mean, I don't really, it's not, I don't really remember him particularly for the Norwich one because there's nothing he could have yeah. done, but the, the, the last thing he did for the club pretty much was to let it through, having been such a great keeper for us. Was to yeah. Cost us yeah. Once at Norwich, I, I mean, the statistic that Norwich had no shots on target yeah. or two goals, was, <laughs> I, I'm surprised it hasn't come on question of sport yet. Yeah, yeah. It may, it may, it may yet. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's all sad news what you just said, Russ, and obviously yeah. there's, there's rather too much sad news flying around at the moment. I think, I think yeah. you know, what, what Raymond said about Hunter is right, and I was got sad when I read that. I mean, he was a, a, an icon of the game, I think, and it, as you said, there were there were other, uh, what should we call them, uncompromising centre-halves of that era who, you know, as you yeah. rightly said, you couldn't, you couldn't play that way in the modern game. You'd be, yeah. you'd be off the pitch within minutes. Um, but, you know, it just shows you how much the game's changed. But I think, yeah. And it's only when somebody like that, who is an iconic figure, passes that you, you kind of realise, stop and realise how much the game yeah. has Even in the 80s, the, um, you mentioned the cup final earlier on when we were talking, and, uh, you know, looking back on that game, the uh, I haven't seen the replay as you did, Richard, but I've seen the uh, replay of the first match of 83, and, again, the tackles that were going on there, Wilkins, Whiteside. Yeah. Um, I was Flark, literally going to say exactly the same thing. This is going to... Because we watched it at Seagulls over London a couple of years ago, didn't we? And it was kind That's of like, right. Yeah. Some of the yeah. tackles were just, yeah... I was, yeah, yeah. madness. Yeah, well, the, one, the, 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 the tackle that took out Chris Ramsey. Yes, that's right. It was by yeah. Whiteside, and, and we conceded a goal when we were down to ten men temporarily while he was off the field receiving uh, yeah. treatment, wasn't it? And I have to say so, that for, for balance, there was one equally bad that one of our players, who I can't remember who it was now, put in before that tackle from memory that Thomas yeah. not mentioned because it didn't lead to an injury, but was pretty mm. horrendous as well from that that game. Might have yeah. been Case. Probably was Case, to be honest. I would think so. <laughs> 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 to, to be fair, it hasn't completely disappeared from the game. I mean, in, in, mm. given that there's no live sport on telly at the moment, and there's been loads of reruns. There was one on TV the other day which had um, uh, Roy Keane's infamous tackle. Oh, God, yeah. That was... What was his name? Yeah. Harland. Harland. Harland Senior, as we now call um, yeah. And even in slow motion, that was quite difficult. To, well, probably especially in slow motion, it was pretty difficult to watch. You know, it was real... Yeah, talking of Harland, what a pity we weren't able to sign his son. I don't know. Well, that would have been nice. <laughs> yes, he's quite good, isn't he? <laughs> I don't think we were close, to be honest. No, I don't, I don't think it was ever. A, I think. <laughs> it would be good though. Um, mm. the, the weird thing is, if the season gets scrubbed out, do all of his incredible number of goals, <laughs> a prof- a prolific goal-scoring record, does that all just get expunged? He'd yeah, bring up that wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, just quickly on obituaries, go back to a morbid point again. Unfortunately, this week, uh, or in the last week or so, we've also lost race-driving legend Sir Sterling Moss. Spielberg's um, one-time cinematographer, Alan Davio, who shot E.T., Empire of the Sun, The Colour Purple, and other films like Bugsy as well. Um, he's, he's died um, through COVID, I believe. Um, American actor Brian Dennehy has also died. Debuted in an episode of classic TV cop series, Kojak, I was reading this week. Uh, before going on to feature in First Blood, the Rambo film, 
FX, Presumed Innocent, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, a few other things like that. But he was mainly a TV movie and made-for-video guy, wasn't he? Um, with a regular stint, I think, later in the West Wing. But he, he died. And Tim Brooke Taylor was another victim yeah. um, of COVID. Yeah, goodies, uh, classic TV series I remember growing up in the 70s. Um, same, shame to see him suddenly go as well. And, and also, uh, apparently, one of the co-authors of the famous Four Yorkshiremen sketch. The oh yes yeah yeah that's right um i also heard dynamo the famous um current musician uh, musician sorry magician um who's a superstar an absolute brilliant talent um he's he's had all sorts of health problems through the years and he's had covid thankfully he seems to have recovered from it but um that was another one who's who suffered with it and kenny dog leash thankfully has also um recovered and jimmy reeves few... as well hasn't he he's, he's out of hospital I think, yeah well. i'm not sure if it was covid but he was in yeah. He was in, wasn't he, for something? But he's, he's recovered, yeah, yeah. But on a lighter note, we'll get on to uh, another debating point that Richard wanted to bring up from earlier. It's the question of, um, well, I don't know if you want to put it forward, uh, Richard, you'll probably put it in better words than me. About, well, I, um, I, I, I doubt that, I doubt that. But I, was, I, was, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, given that there's been so much talk about, you know, not just football matches, but other sports events having, having to happen behind closed doors, I was kind of, without a crowd, in other words. I was kind of idly wondering as to, you know, what the implications of all that might be because, uh, you know, you've heard a lot of different views expressed by players of various sports on whether they relish the prospect or don't. Um, and certainly in football, you know, we, we, we kind of credit the crowd with a, with a huge amount of influence and the players go and mm. applaud the crowd at the end of the game and commentators say the first thing the team needs to do is quieten the crowd and da 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 da, da. So I, I, I did a very unscientific piece of research um, through a famous internet services provider. And there's been, lo there's been loads of studies on this about, you know, home advantage, is there such a thing? And if there is, what role does the crowd play in it? And there was this one study by Moskowitz and Wertheim, who are not authors I'm familiar with, but anyway, mm. they did the study in it in Italy in 2007. There was a series of games played behind closed doors because of hooliganism problems, and they they tracked the the metrics or you know the player metrics of these 21 games. So all the things that people measure, like you know pass pass accuracy, number of runs, mm. shots mm. on goal, goal efficiency, all that sort of stuff. Um, and they discovered absolutely no difference in any of those metrics between mm. games that were played without a crowd and games that were played with a crowd. Um, however, they did concede that, you know, all the other studies that had pointed to home advantage, there is still such a thing as home advantage, but it isn't necessarily achieved by singing songs in favour of your team and clapping your team. It's, they reckon it's mostly through um, the referee and the, the crowd's influence on the referee, yeah. consci consciously or otherwise, is the way in which home advantage comes about. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the moral of the story is that rather than going and cheering the team, we should be spending, and I'm, obviously I'm not on record as saying this or recommending it. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> we should be, you know, shouting abuse at the referee for an hour and a half. Um, because I mean, some people do do that anyway. Some so people do do that anyway. And obviously, <laughs> but, obviously I'm, but, you know, it was, there were some quite other, there were some other quite interesting observations. And one is that, um, not necessarily from that study, but crowd density matters. So if you've got a 20,000 crowd in a 20,000 seat stadium, i.e. it's full, hmm. yeah. you might accrue more of a home advantage than a 30,000 crowd in a 40,000 seat stadium, if you see what I mean. Um, there was also one that mentioned that r stadiums with running tracks in them 
there is less of a home advantage, which mm-hmm. any, I guess anyone who's been to the With Dean might, <laughs> might recognise. Probably current well, West Ham fans would recognise. Yeah, but, um, I'd say with With Dean, it was so weird that I think in a way we did have an advantage for when well, we had good teams. That may be true for other was, reasons. Um, it was such an odd it, ground. <laughs> yeah, but it was interesting. I mean, ha- having dug out that article, there was also, um, and I think Brighton are one of the clubs considering or at least thinking about doing this, that if some or even all of the remaining games ever get played behind closed doors about pumping crowd sounds into the stadium in order to simulate as far as possible a game atmosphere. Mm. I think, Richard, interesting that last point, because the Telegraph gave Brighton credit for actually saying that at the meeting on Friday, that we were considering it. And the other thought that apparently we had uh, was to actually have a huge thing in the sort of background saying, you know, thanks to uh, the NHS yes. heroes. Which I um, think is a very good idea. There's a point I think came out of your uh, podcast, uh, Russell and Peter, with uh, Paul Barber, as opposed to the question and answer session, where a number of different initiatives, Brighton have actually led the way, and, mm. which I think is... Uh, I'm really quite proud of, and I think p- points well to the to the club, and but more than anybody else, uh, offering up a thousand free seats to the NHS when matches can have crowds again. Um, the, the thing which I think has been lost, the, the Amazon gift to all members of their staff, um, yeah. saying that they would yeah. pay all their match match day only part time staff, even if the matches aren't played. Um, all of those sort of initiatives, I think Brighton have done really well. And I think we should take pride, as I do, and I think, uh, and congratulate the club on what they have been doing as actually market leaders. At no stage have we, as yet, uh, aware of, I've asked anybody to go on furlong or anything else. We haven't had to do U-turns like even Liverpool or Spurs. And I think, you know, Bloom, and Barber ought to be congratulated for setting that, that leadership. Yeah, yeah I, I, think we've I agree. the back of the net, haven't we, while others have scored down goals. And here, here, I second everything you just said. I've, yeah. I've come up with a genius solution. Rather than having uh, pre-recorded crowd noise, they could buy 30,000 laptops and have everyone individually on their seat in a Zoom meeting <laughs> individually, and then they can shout abuse at the referee through their computer. <laughs> there, there's an idea that hasn't been there. I mean, one, of, one of the other interesting things was that... Um, and I'm not sure it was from the same study, was that um, uh, the, the louder the crowd noise is at any given point, the more, li- you know, in, in shouting for a foul that they think the opposition team has committed, the more likely the referee is, the more likely they are to be wrong, but the more likely the referee is to give the free kick uh-huh. in favour. So if, if, if the artificial crowd noise can be done precisely enough that it can be pumped up to full volume at precisely the time an opposition player commits a dodgy-looking tackle, then that's when it's likely to be most effective. Not yeah. sure we can do that, though. Yeah, I, I like your idea, Peter, of a laptop. But I haven't <laughs> yeah, that's a very good idea. A cousin of mine who, who runs a storage and uh, uh, removals business, that he was having to put all his staff working at home, virtually all of them, and he just he could not get enough laptops initially to actually have them all on I, don't, I, I don't think they'll have enough laptops. I don't think it, <laughs> it may not be the most serious suggestion ever, but it would be quite a nice one to be able to put, your, I put my laptop down on my seat and I can watch the game and, 
and interact with the uh, thing. But yeah, I think probably <laughs> 30,000 laptops will cost a lot of money. Well, actually, uh, somebody, I, I was telling Russell earlier today that uh, uh, a friend of mine who I used to go to watch the football with, um, who died a couple of years ago, he, uh, his, uh, one of his sons is living and working out in Singapore. His girlfriend, this guy, John, uh, John, his girlfriend, bought some shares in Zoom. And uh, it's gone up 57% <laughs> since the lockdown crisis. Mm. And they were comparing their portfolios, John and his girlfriend. And her portfolio is worth what it was before the market started going down, or, or just a, a, a few hundred Singapore dollars less. And he, his is down 14%, courtesy of Zoom. So there are people making money out of that. I, I, mm. do, I do think the, I don't know whether we've got time for it, but I do think the furloughing thing is quite interesting. And I think, and there are lots of different aspects to it. And I can't, I can't, help, I can't help thinking that part of the reason that football clubs, particularly Premier League clubs, are sort of getting hauled over the coals for what they are or aren't doing in this area is, Partly because in a lot of the public imagination, football means, you know, overpaid prima donnas who've got more money than they know what to do with and therefore they shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. I think it's interesting that when, when the Chancellor launched it, he said, you know, there should be no artificial limitations on it other than the rules that govern it. It's a big lifeboat that everybody who's qualified should be able to take advantage of. Many, many companies that are doing it are topping up um staff incomes you know beyond what the government is providing um including some football clubs i believe i just you know and i wonder if we were talking you know if instead of talking about a football club we were talking about an oil company or a bank or a technology company whose most mm. highly played employees are also extremely rich you know british airways have got thirty thousand people on furlough from what i understand and nobody's making a fuss about that and that has the full sanction of the unions so i i I think it would be a different conversation if it wasn't a football club we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, there's always double standards when it comes to football, isn't there? The big fuss for Matt Hunt, Hancock and others versus the football people has been messy and a bit unpleasant. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a misstep. Yeah, it was, it was none of Matt Hancock's business, frankly, and yeah. he shouldn't have got involved, and that's what started the whole... And I think there has been a lot of criticism of Premier League players. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm, I, not, I, I'm not one to agree with Piers Morgan. Around the time he was making that statement, you know, Jordan Henderson and others were kind of going into a huddle behind the scenes to get this players yeah. together initiative sorted out. Now, mm. you know, Hancock didn't know that, I guess, but nonetheless, you know, they were off their own bat trying to work out what the best way as very prominent, high profile, highly paid footballers of doing their bit was. Yeah. And I don't, it, 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 was, it wasn't obvious what the best way of helping out was from a financial perspective, because there were lots of ways of doing it. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I think my uh, comments were a bit unfortunate. It's disproportionate repre representation of the situation, isn't it, really? Because you're just showing one aspect of the, of the world where money could be donated, other people are not being held to account. I'm not one to yeah. agree with Piers Morgan normally, but he was calling out the MPs themselves. I personally think that if Matt Hancock wants to call out the footballers, not that I think he should, but if he did, then he should also call out other people yeah. high up in industry, as you said. Yeah. The, I think definitely. I mean, definitely, Russell. I mean, if you're going to mention the footballers, men mention all mention the other it. people. I mean, yeah. it would have been fair comment if there'd been half a dozen different industries mentioned at that time. 
you know, mm. if, if you said people like bankers, like footballers, like yeah. uh, you know, uh, whatever. Um, the, the, yeah, there was also that, a very interesting article that came out for the, um, uh, Ben Mee, the Burnley player, wrote, I think it was in The Guardian, you know, it said, it's kind of often forgotten that, that yeah, okay, Premier League footballers are very well paid. A lot of them come from um, fairly disadvantaged backgrounds and most haven't forgotten their roots and still, you know, many of them, even in the normal course of events, in normal circumstances, make donations or have charitable foundations, which, you know, kind of can get a little bit overlooked when hmm. senior politicians need a convenient target to have a pop at. Yeah, I agree. I, just a couple of points I'll reiterate from like, something I said last week on the show. First one is that a lot of them are players are from Premier League players from overseas and will want to donate to their back to their back home where their families a lot of the time are and friends, and so want to support kind of charities maybe overseas. So actually, a aren't under the NHS necessarily, and kind of you know if they have private treatment anyway, maybe want to support the NHS equivalent in their country or some sort of thing like that. Yeah. But also, in the end, they're probably going to end up doing the same amount of work as they were paid for originally. There's a fair chance they'll be playing 38 games this season and having to play 38 games next season in a very short schedule, where actually they get a lot less time off in between than usual. Yeah. So actually, they, they'll still be playing the same number of games. So, you know, if the, if the Premier League clubs can afford it, I see no reason why, they, why the players, and they still get Sky money because they eventually have the games again. I don't see any reason why the players should take a pay cut where I, I think they should do something is donated to charities, and that's what they seem to be doing. Yeah, um, I agree with those, those points, I think. I'm conscious of time, we're going to have to wrap up fairly soon, but just quickly on a couple of other things. Um, the question is, how long do you hold off on cancelling the season versus the EFL clubs, and possibly above the EFL level, being on the brink? I mean, this kind of ties in with the whole financial predicament, doesn't it? There's a lot of people saying they're very close to the edge. Um, or their clubs are. Gary Neville has alluded to the notion that that's the case uh, from the clubs he's spoken to. That's a bit of a worry, isn't it? And, and mm. there's that to take into account. Um, I don't know if anyone's got any comments on that or whether I'll move on to my final question. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to sort of kick off on that one, uh, Russell. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I mean, looking at the, the comments that have come out that they would like to start next season um, no later than the beginning of September... Uh, effectively, you've got to have at least, uh, I would have thought, three, three and a half weeks pre-season, you know, testing of the footballers and also, you know, to get back in and you might have brought new players in. So, and you probably need two, two and a half weeks break from the end of the previous season. So if you're looking at the beginning of September, something like the 5th of September, the, the first game, then you're looking at finishing the season by about the 20th of July. Um, that means to do that you're going to have to start playing by about the 12th of June that means you've got to actually be out of lockdown by about the 23rd or 4th of May so we've got about five weeks from now in which a decision has to be made and I mean you and I've had this discussion before Russell but I yeah. think you know there ought to be some certainty if we cannot start, start by whatever the date is then yeah. we call the season off. And I think Bloom is absolutely right that the, if that is the case, or you can only have a couple more rounds, then no relegation. And again, we're, I think we're leading um, you know, in terms of that debate. And I think that's a good thing. And incidentally, going back to the previous point, uh, Peter was making people making gifts to Hambash, gave money to his local village where he came from, uh, 
over the virus. Um, Matty Ryan has did his thing with a fire in Australia. So people have been doing those sorts of yeah, things. Yeah. And again, it, Brighton players have been up there, the first people doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, well, I mean, we're running out of time now because we want to try and get this uh, finished on this Zoom call, <laughs> which is running down. So just quickly, um, final question to you guys, well, to Richard and to Raymond, because Peter and I have discussed this many a time before. Um, how have you been keeping occupied so far during the lockdown? And do you have plans or projects going forward in the next few weeks involving staying in your house, obviously? <laughs> sure, blimey. Um, well, I've actually been working quite a lot. I mean, I, you know, a lot of work days are kind of end-to-end Zoom calls, which are, which are quite tiring. Mm. But, um, but outside of that, um, long games of Scrabble, um, yeah. uh, uh, family card games around the kitchen table, which can get quite fractious and end up pretty late. Um, <laughs> listening, listening to some very, very interesting podcasts. Um, some ah. from, the, from from the Guyver Marsh stable, others others from <laughs> elsewhere. Um, you flatter us, sir. I, 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 well, no, they're good. I caught up with I caught up with some Desert Island discs actually. Um, yeah, that can be good. Ian, be good. Ian Wright was quite interesting, and Louis. That was Cooper. a good one, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. it was a good one. Um, and. Um, the garden is looking quite good because it's got more attention than it's ever had before. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and washing my hands very regularly. That's what I've been doing. <laughs> okay, brilliant. And Raymond, how about well, you? Well, I'll start off with the washing hands frequently. Um, definitely doing that. Started using some of the stuff you could buy and found that my hands reacted to it. So oh, using conventional soap and water um, and, and none of those. Jane had the same reaction. And uh, yeah. so, you know, coincidentally, and we found that actually using the surgical gloves that Jane was doing going shopping and things didn't help her either. Um, walking uh, up and down my uh, garden, I can got a, an easy area to do about 25, 26 yards. So I'm doing the mm. equivalent of lengths up and down that about 50, somewhere between 50 and 70 a day. Yeah. Um, so rather like swimming lengths and... and doing some exercises and a bit of Pilates, um, working during the week, uh, in spite of the sort of frustrations and not being able to get hold of people, because a lot of organisations have people working at home, and you yeah. simply can't, can't get hold of them. So, and attending podcasts and uh, question and answer sessions for Brighton, and chatting to uh, the guru Russell Guyver, amongst <laughs> others. Um, and, and long may it continue. Um, yeah, you know, in correct. terms of that sort of activity, while this lockdown is going on, but uh, you know, yeah, God yeah. knows how long it will go on. Well, you're, you're being very flattering about our podcast. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Thank you very much indeed. Um, if you are listening and you want to contact us, it's brightonrockpodcast at gmail.com. And you can get us on Twitter, brightonrockpod, um, at brightonrockpo1. For some reason, the address is slightly different. No idea why. Um, also, you can follow, uh, follow us or listen to us on Spotify or on iTunes, uh, hit subscribe and rate us five stars if you can, if you do follow us on iTunes. You can even write a review if you can, all of which will help with our positioning and our search and ranking. So we'd appreciate any of that. Um, we'd also love you to tweet about us using hashtags 
BHAFC and Brighton Rock Pod, and you can retweet any of our materials. And we're also affiliated with Seagulls Over London, as Peter and I are on the committee, and our listeners, including both of you two, uh, are amongst our membership slash listenership. If you have any interest in joining that supporters group, you can contact us via the email, which can be found at www.seagullsoverlondon.com. Um, next week, we're planning to do another segment in our team's choices, probably featuring Robin Woolley, who's been with us before, on uh, the decades um, themes. We might do one on the 80s if we, if we get a chance. We'll, we'll have to see. Stay tuned for any of that. Um, and as for you guys, thank you for joining us. Um, as always, it's been me, Russell Guyver, with Peter Marsh. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Russ. Uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us for both of these episodes, episode 27 and this one, episode 28, to Richard Holberton. Thank you again, Richard. It's a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Excellent. Last Great. Week. Glad you enjoyed it. And thank you once again to the gents, Raymond Wright. Thank you, Raymond. Uh, great fun, Russell. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I thought it was a good four. So uh, we can reconvene again. Indeed, we could do this all again. We may have another opportunity. We'll I have plenty we... of time over the next few months, <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all cheers, guys. guys. Stand cheers, forward. everyone. Up the Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.